Y'all join me in the reading of God's Word this morning, please. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Father in heaven, as we stand here today, uh, a body of believers hungry to hear you, I pray you'd feed us. I pray you'd open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. Help us not to just look at this letter as if it's a historical document from thousands of years ago. Help us receive it as a letter to us today. Help us to hear you in it. Help us to hear what you're telling us. Help us to do it. Father God, may more of us be like Paul. May our lives be so full, so focused, so yours, so much yours, that we can only gain in death more you. Lord, I just ask you, please, to be with my voice this morning. Let it not be a hindrance to your voice getting into the ears of the people here. Please. In Jesus' name. Y'all be seated. If y'all do have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Continuing today, study that we started last week. And we read the 12th through the 26th verse just now. We began last week to study the letter of Paul that he wrote to the church at Philippi. Then we stated that part of Paul's purpose in writing was to express gratitude for the partnership of the proclamation of the gospel and to encourage believers in Philippi in their journey to spiritual maturity. As it's true for most letters that people write, Paul, he also wanted them to understand the people at Philippi. 
why he was where he was. He wanted them to understand his current circumstances. Interestingly, Paul is right where he'd hoped to be. He just didn't expect to get there like that. He expressed his desire in Acts chapter 19, 21 to see Rome. Where he said in his letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 15, he was eager to preach the gospel. Paul hadn't been to Rome yet. He planned on going to Rome. He looked forward to going to Rome. And he ended up going to Rome in chains. He thought he was going to go as a preacher and as a free man. And he went as a prisoner in Jesus Christ. It was the prophet Agabus in Acts 21, 10 and 11 who told Paul that his wish was about to be granted. As we stayed many days, it says there, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he came to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. The preacher of the gospel would go to Rome as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He would be shipwrecked. He would be stranded on an island and he would be snake bit. Acts 27, 9 through 28, 16 for the background on all that happened as Paul made his journey to Rome, shipwrecked on the island of Malta there for three, um, three months, I think it was now. Shipwrecked there. He was tending to a fire. He was stoking this fire and he reached down and he got bit by a snake and they thought for sure he was going to die. This was the judgment of God. All these things happened to him. And finally, he arrived at Rome as the preaching prisoner whose chains were in Christ. Reminds me of Proverbs 19.21 where it says, There are many plans in a man's heart, but the Lord's counsel, that will stand. God intended for Paul to go to Rome, just not the way Paul thought he was going to get there. Paul was walking in the will of God and headed in the direction which the Lord had set, but he arrived in a different way and a more dramatic set of circumstances than he had expected. The apostle, however, didn't spend a whole lot of time. If you look again in verses 12 through 26, he doesn't spend any time at all really saying, these things which happened to me, he doesn't enumerate them. Look, he doesn't say anything about the shipwreck or the snake biting or, 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 or any of those things. Saying only in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that the thing which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It was the outcome of his imprisonment that Paul was actually excited to share. He was excited to say that his chains didn't hinder the gospel. They advanced it more. The chains didn't hinder God's word. And so, as we begin to unpack today from this section of the scripture, some things, I, I want you to take home a few points, and I, I have li them listed as... as uh, headings for the different sections in the back of your bulletin, but they're actually points for us to consider as we think about our own lives. Last week, I talked about Christ-centered lives, that joy overflows from lives that are centered on Christ. And so I take that and I move forward now and I say Christ-centered people take Christ into every circumstance. Christ-centered people take Christ into every circumstance, good ones and bad ones. Verse 11 and 12 again, repeated, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Guys, there's no accidents with God. Paul wasn't there by accident. This wasn't coincidental that he just happened to be at Rome. God orchestrated all of this. 
How many of us understand that the things which happen in our lives that we think are coincidental have actually been orchestrated by the Lord for this particular time? And you've been put in this place and in front of that person for a very specific reason. Whether you're in jail or out of jail, whether you're on the road or you're in a store, it doesn't matter. God has these divine appointments for us. Nothing happens by accident. Paul's imprisonment was part of the plan of God who said in Romans 8.28, we know all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And you know, we don't have to think too hard. Everybody knows the name Joseph. We go back to, uh, to Genesis and we read about Joseph who was uh, initially arrested or, or taken into slavery because his father favored him over his other 11 brothers. Really, dad was the one that messed up there. Favoritism's never a good thing to bring into any household. So Joseph ends up being a slave. But remember, it was integrity. It was his integrity that got him put in jail. Remember that? He was thrown in prison after having been in Potiphar's house. And he was, he was the man responsible, second in command over all of Potiphar's things. And Potiphar's wife, she had the hots for Joseph. And one day when Joseph kept on refusing, and kept on refusing, and kept on refusing to give in to her, invitation and her seduction he said i can't do it should i sin before my god and do this and as he ran off she got a hold of his tunic and basically accused him of attempting to sleep with her to her husband it was joseph's integrity that wound him in prison and yet he says in genesis 50 20 as for you he was talking to his brothers. You meant it as evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring, a bit, uh, bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. Joseph was brought into prison so that at that time of famine that came at the end of this story, he was in a place to set aside provision for his brothers and make sure the whole family was taken care of through a famine. They all came to Egypt. Read the story in Genesis about Joseph and his family. It's It's beautiful. But just like Paul, Joseph was incarcerated because he was trying to please the Lord. God would use Paul's change to advance his good news. But to do so through Paul, the apostle had to have the right attitude. He had to have the right attitude. And that step, statement takes me back to something I said last week. Last week, I said, as I reminded you a minute ago, joy overflows from lives that are centered on Christ. And at that time, you might have thought, well, I got joy in my life. And I would have replied to you, your joy is fickle. Your joy is fickle and fleeting. If you're having a good time, you got joy. If you're having a bad time, the joy is gone. Our joy is fickle and dependent upon the moment but lasting and overcoming ever-present joy only depends on Christ. Take Paul, for example. He was likely chained between true Roman guards 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Now, it wasn't the same two guys, because that would have been prison sentence for the guards too then. So they switched him out about every six hours. But so he had four different sets of guards through the day chained to him 24-7, 365, while he was in custody. He had no privacy. He had no tangible freedom. Yet it was the gospel rather than griping and complaining that filled his heart and mouth. 
You and I would have complained probably about the things that we need to do that we'd like to do in private. We would have griped about this or that. But the only thing that came out of Paul's mouth was the gospel. How do I know that? Because it says that these guys recognized that Paul was there for Christ's sake. He was in prison for Christ's sake. If he'd been there for any other reason or if he'd been griping and complaining, they would have had reason to question whether or not he knew Jesus at all. What makes him any different than us? The fact was... He used that time to tell others about Jesus, the source of his joy, his hope, his contentment, his strength, and his salvation. How else could it have been evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that Paul's chains were in Christ? Not only did the guards hear, think about this for a minute, guys. The letter you're reading right now to the Philippians was dictated. The guards that were chained on either side of him, they heard him tell this story. Every letter to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, the letter of Philemon, the letter here to Philippi, the words that he said to Timothy, those conversations that he had with these beloved servants of Christ, his friends, these guards heard it all. And it says to us in Philippians 4.22, when Paul greets them at the end of his letter, he says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. These guys believe the message because Paul didn't gripe and because Paul didn't complain and because Paul was preaching the gospel and because Paul was living the gospel, these guys had no reason to question. And they received Jesus and became saints of God through his testimony. Now guys, as we start to unpack and as we look further into Paul's life, what we're going to see is Paul was exceptional, but he ain't supposed to be. Paul's example is the example as we read on in this letter His example is supposed to be the one we follow. His example wasn't supposed to be um, so exceptional that nobody else could live up to it. It was supposed to be that which we would all walk in. He took Christ into every circumstance. From this we can learn that the Christ-centered Christian doesn't allow circumstances to overcome him. He or she turns those circumstances into opportunities to magnify Christ before men. Paul's change not only gave him access to a segment of the population he otherwise never would have reached, that being the Praetorian Guard, but it also encouraged other Christians to fearlessly proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. I'll tell you what, when I saw that and I studied it, I started scratching my head because usually prison is a deterrent. When people see other people in jail, they don't want to do what they did so they don't end up where they are, right? But in this case, the people took courage by Paul's chains because Paul was having an effect even within. In other words, the Lord was present with Paul even inside the jail, even with these guys, even in custody. Paul was pre- God was present with Paul. See, in the truest sense of the word, furthering the gospel. Paul was acting like a pioneer. We think about pioneer in many different ways. You know, the first person to go someplace. Well, that's actually true, but actually the term pioneer is a a military term, and it speaks to the infantrymen that go out in front of the main body of the army and clear the way for the rest to come through. And Paul was clearing the way for the rest of those preaching the gospel to come right on in and follow along. He was blazing a trail for the gospel in Rome 
and for the believers there. And those believers, seeing that the Lord was with Paul and believing that he would be with them too, boldly spoke the word. Do you believe the Lord will be with you today if you speak the word? Do you believe that the Lord will be with you today if, if he led you into one of these divine appointments and you began to speak the word of the Lord to somebody who desperately needed to hear it today? Most people have too much fear to speak. This word should give you courage. In his second letter to Timothy, as Paul's date with the executioner neared, Paul said to his young protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, Remember that Christ Jesus of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not chained. Wherever we go as Christians carrying the good news, it's not chained. If they send you to jail because you're preaching the word of God, preach there. The word of God is not changed. It has, it has power. So Christ-centered people take Christ into every circumstance. The second thing I want us to think about today is Christ-centered people care that Christ is preached. You see, in today's culture of Christianity, in today's American church, a lot of people are more satisfied to be entertained than they are to hear the message preached. We're not happy that the message is preached today. We'd rather be happy that, that we were entertained, that it was an entertaining service, that, that the music was wonderful or something like that. Verse 15 through 18 for this. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Paul might have been discouraged about the motivation of some who took courage to preach while he was locked up. He might have been discouraged, that is, if life was all about him. This is really an important point for us to take home today. Life isn't all about you. Life isn't all about me. When you come to Christ, your life shouldn't be about you at all anymore. It should be about Him. I don't know too many people that live that perfectly, but it is the model that we're supposed to be living towards. Life is all about Him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is about Christ. For Paul, Paul, everything was about Jesus. To be sure, there already was a church of sorts in Rome when Paul arrived in chains. Even his letter to the Romans recognized that to be the case in his greeting. In Romans 1.7, to all who are in Rome, he wrote, beloved of God, called to be saints. No doubt, Paul's reputation also preceded him. Think about that for a minute. If Billy Graham was coming to Westoff, do you think some of the preachers in Westoff might be a little, you know what I'm saying? Now, I understand Billy Graham is no longer with us, so it would be even more amazing if he was coming today to our church to preach. But I'm saying, that Paul's reputation preceded him to Rome along with his letter to the Roman church. And it made some of the weaker lay ministers uncomfortable. To be honest, there were guys there already preaching the word. I know what that kind of jealousy is like. 
I know what it's like to have somebody come and is superior or uh, more knowledgeable, more uh, wiser. I know what it's like to have that happen. I've seen that happen. I've experienced it. And become envious and become jealous. And that don't glorify God. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't please God. You see, his reputation made those weaker lay ministers uncomfortable. Kind of like Jesus' birth made Herod uncomfortable. And his ministry made the Pharisees and the Sadducees uncomfortable. In each case, there was concern that the influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and King, the governor, their influence would be impeded by someone they deemed a competitor rather than someone God was using to change the world. How many of y'all know there's room for more than one person to change the world? There was only one real life changer, right? His name's Jesus Christ. But he's appointed many servants to go out and dispatch and give his word. And no one of them is superior to the other. And there's no reason for us to be envious, jealous, or to pursue out of selfish ambition to get a leg up and to step over them. The ones who preached out of envy and strife and selfish ambition thought they'd add affliction to Paul's chains. But not by preaching another gospel or false teaching. I want you to understand that. Paul rejoiced that whether, whatever their motive was, the word of God was being preached. He said, I rejoice that Christ is preached. Had it been a false gospel, had it been false doctrine that was being peddled by those guys that were preaching out of sinful motives, he wouldn't have been praising that. They were preaching the right gospel. They were preaching Jesus Christ. There was no false doctrine here. It was their motive that was troubling. See, if they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would not have celebrated or even categorized it as being Christ preached. Instead, I think that instead of a martyr standing for the defense of the gospel, they made him look like a criminal deserving of chains. We know what that's like. We've seen even people in our day demonized to make other people look better. We see that today, Good men are falsely accused by men morally beneath them to bring the better man down and to elevate the morally lower. We see it happen today. Guys, I mean, I'm not going to go into great deal, but whatever you know about Paige Patterson, Paige Patterson was the, the beginning of the, of the uh, uh, what would you say, the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention. And a couple of months ago, some upstarts that are beneath him, in my mind, came along and decided if we're going to uproot this and begin a new journey for the Southern Baptist Convention, we've got to start with the conservative part of it. So they attacked him and caused him to be removed. Paige Patterson, you look him up when you get time. But that's what I'm saying. It's happening even today and in our time and within our own denomination that good men are falsely accused by men morally beneath them in order to bring the better man down and elevate themselves. Those who preach the gospel out of love, however, preached because the love of God in Christ compelled them rather than the need to make a name for themselves. There's a lot of powerful truth here. I hope that you're hearing through my weird voice today. The guys that loved the Lord and loved Paul were preaching 
because Christ compelled them rather than to make a name for themselves. They held up Paul's mantle in his absence. They preached out of love for the Lord, out of love for Paul, for the glory of Christ, and for the sake of the lost, not to make a name for themselves. And guys, there are people that preach today the gospel to make a name for themselves. There was a time when somebody asked me here, let's advertise your name and get it out there and, and so we can get more people to come in. We'll just advertise Rich Schaller, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Westhoff. And I said, it ain't about me. We don't advertise about Rich Schaller or any preacher that comes into this place. It's not about the preacher. It's about Jesus Christ. This ain't a business. This is a living thing. And it's about Jesus I guess one takeaway from this section, as we look at these guys who preached out of bad motives or wrong motives, would be that if God can speak through a jackass, and before you think I just spoke out of term, you can take a look at Numbers 22, 28 through 32, when he spoke through a donkey, okay? If God can speak through a jackass, he can speak through selfish, self-centered, self-exalting, envious men to the, and point people towards Christ, it's a reminder to us all, as one man said, that preachers are not as good as the message they preach. We're not. Don't look at me, look at him. Don't look at Larry, look at Jesus. It's all about him. So Christ-centered people take Christ in every circumstance. And Christ-centered people care that Christ is preached. Christ-centered people are happy with whatever Christ decides. Can you say that? Are you happy with whatever Jesus chooses for your life? You know how I know that we are or we aren't? It's when we pray. God, I'd like to do this right now. Um, if it's in your will, please allow it to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now I'm going to go do that. Right? We just do it. Well, are you happy with what Christ decides? Or have you already decided in your own mind, this is what I'm going to do, and you don't really care about that? Look at verse 19. Paul said, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. One thing that we're going to learn, and you might write it down on the back of your bulletin there. One thing we'll learn as we look at the remaining verses of this passage is that a person's objective determines their outlook. A person's objective, their goal, determines their outlook, their approach. Paul's objective in verse 20 was to magnify Christ in his body, either by life or in death. Believers with such an objective don't fade like daisies in the heat when tough circumstances arise. Rather, they resolve themselves to continue towards their objective, come what may. I don't think Paul was worried about dying a martyr's death, y'all. Some people say that he was this word deliverance, which is a word for salvation, that somehow Paul was worried about being delivered from his chains, being delivered from his fate if the Romans should decide to execute him. They think he was afraid of dying a martyr's death. Some people think that the word deliverance there speaks to him being freed from prison so that he'd go back out and minister. I frankly don't think Paul was concerned either with dying a martyr's death or being freed from his chains. I don't think that overwhelmed him. I don't think that was the driving force of his thought. Paul saw the blessing of the Lord in either outcome. Look at verse 22 through 26. But if I live on in the flesh, he said, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I can't tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. 
Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Truly, verse 19 makes it clear that Paul was confident whatever the Lord chose to answer the prayers, however the Lord chose to answer the prayers of those praying for Paul, that the Holy Spirit would supply the strength to bear up, to overcome, proceed, and that ultimately God in Christ would be glorified. Because Paul's objective was to magnify and glorify the Lord, he had this confidence in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation, he said, and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Now listen here, guys. Paul was believing the Lord, and he was waiting on the Lord for the Lord's decision. Waiting on the Lord who said in Isaiah 49, 23, they shall not be ashamed who wait on me. And who said in Romans 9, 33, and 1 Peter 2, 6, from Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes on the Lord will not be put to shame And who said in Jeremiah 17, 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. Blessed, happy. You're not going to be ashamed. Paul would be happy in with whatever the outcome the Lord chose for his life. For this reason in our final point, Christ-centered people have nothing to lose. Do you hear me? I really want you to think about that, because I did. I thought about it so much, and I thought it was so important, I added it to your bulletin. And I left a couple of blanks in the bulletin so that you, when you get time, can answer the, fill in the blanks yourself. His, the most important verse in this section for me is verse 21. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And you'll notice in the bulletin I left a blank there where Christ is and where gain is so that you can put whatever you would say is the most important thing in your life. But let me tell you from Paul's perspective, Jesus died and rose and one day he revealed himself to Saul of Tarsus, a Roman with a Jewish background, a Pharisee trained in an incredible and with an incredible passion for the Lord as he thought he knew him. That meeting on the Damascus Road that we read about in Acts 9, 3-6 forever changed Saul's life. His Roman name, Paul, first used in Acts 13, 9, wasn't given to him like Abraham. You remember Abraham over in Genesis 17, 5. One day God determined to change Abram's name to Abraham. And there's a meaning behind that. But regarding Paul... Paul was his Roman name. He was Saulus, Paulus, if you can go with that. And name wasn't new. It wasn't given to him by Jesus. But it did make it easier for the former persecutor turned preacher to minister in the name of Christ. Because if he came at people by Saul, people would be like, man, wasn't he around just trying to kill people over here just a few weeks ago? Um... Are you sure this guy's okay? So 
So changing his name to Paul or using his second name, his Roman name, Paul, made it easier for him to minister in the name of Christ. The point is that Paul died to everything that made Saul, Saul. Everything. Saul, he died to himself to become everything Christ wanted him to be. Paul's objective to magnify the Lord in life or death could never have been met. Were he holding on to anything from his former life or world? But what are we holding on to? I told you a while ago that Paul's life wasn't meant to be exempt, uh, extraordinary in the sense that nobody could attain to it. It was meant to be exemplary in that we were to walk in it, that we were to pursue him. And as we read, we'll read that he says, whatever you saw in me, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He says, live by my example. Follow my example. Living meant for Paul whatever the Lord wanted. And death meant going to be with the one who died for him in heaven's glory. It couldn't, it couldn't, get, ba- it couldn't, it couldn't get better. I mean, it was going to get better. What well, my point is, everything was going to get better from the time he trusted Jesus. He'd already died to Christ. For me to die, to live as Christ and to die is gain. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34-36. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Do you now hear what Jesus meant through Paul's words? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, Jesus was saying... He who desires to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. If you can get rid of all the stuff that used to be used so that you can be everything God wants you to be in your life, if you can just get out of the way, get out of the Holy Spirit's way, get out of Jesus' way and let him clean house and make you the person he wants you to be and cast out the things you don't need so Jesus can put into your thing the things that you do need, you can be just like Paul. We as Christians, need to be people who have nothing to lose. But our security systems, our sidearms, the way we strive at medical procedures. Guys, this isn't in my notes, but I thought about it and I was going to put it there, so now I'm going to just tell you. Do you know that in the animal kingdom, of all the creatures God made, there's only one that has a redeemable soul. You know which one it is? You. We have a redeemable soul. Your dog doesn't. Your cats don't. Your chickens don't. Your cows don't. None of the other things that God's made have a redeemable soul. Only you. When you become a Christian, you have eternal life. And yet, of all God's creation, you and I are the ones that work the hardest to prolong life in the flesh on earth. The animal kingdom, when they die, they die. They don't have a future. Christians, we have a future in Jesus. And we are going to go to heaven kicking and screaming. I don't want to go yet. How do I know that? Because we go to every length possible, to heroic lengths, to preserve and extend 
our lives. Our focus is on the flesh, not on Jesus. Am I a Jehovah Witness? No. I just believe that you and I are way too focused on what's going to die anyways and not, not enough focused on the part of us that lives forever. Paul had nothing to lose because he'd given his life to Jesus. Paul wasn't saying that his death would be better than the worst of life. Paul wasn't saying that his death would be better than the worst life could throw at him. He was saying that his death would be better than the best that life can throw at him. His death would be better than the best. Does that sound morbid? Does that sound kind of, man, get that off me, Pastor. I don't like how that sounds. But it's true. Can you and I say that? Would we say that? That our dying right now, our dying in Jesus Christ, our death right now would be better than the best that life can throw at us. And if we can't say that, what's the best that you're thinking about? What are you thinking about right now? If you're thinking that something's better than dying and being with Jesus right now, what is it? What could it be? You ain't made a name for yourself yet. You still want to make a reputation for yourself. Maybe your bank account's not big enough. You're trying to build that up. What is it? There's something. And guys, I'm in the camp too. I'm in the same camp. I struggle with this. As I, as I see this, do I have something to lose? Is there something in your life or mine that keeps us from being all in for Jesus? So when you get a chance, fill in those blanks. For me to live is blank and to die is blank. But let me tell you, whatever you might be living for apart from Jesus Christ, whatever you put in the first blank, the getting of wealth, the making of your reputation, the enjoyment of family, the pleasure of recreation, whatever. The second blank following words like that can only be one. To me, to live is all that, and to die is loss. Loss. But, and simply because in death you lose everything. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, we came into this world with nothing. And we're going to go out the same way. He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we came into this world with nothing and we shall go with nothing. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. He was saying, find your contentment in what you got. Because you're not carrying anything out. So if you can put anything else but Jesus in the first column, the second column's word is always going to be loss. But if you've died to this world, and really come alive to Jesus. The second blank will always be gain. Jesus said, you'll have more family now and in heaven. Jesus said, you'll have more riches now and in heaven. What kind of riches are we talking about? I don't see everybody around here driving around in a, 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 a Cadillac. What kind of riches? Does it have to be money? 
He just said we'll have more. And now, and into eternity to come. If Christ is in the first blank, for me to live is Christ. My life is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters more. Then you'll lose nothing in death. Because you've got everything that matters in life. Maltby Babcock, who wrote, This is my father's world. You know the song, This is my father's world. I'll try not to sing because my voice is Okay, never mind. This is my father's world. He said, Life is what we're alive to. Life is what we're alive to. Warren Wearsby speaking about his comment says, When my wife and I go shopping, I dread to the yard, going to the yard goods department. You all know what the yard goods department is, don't you? Anybody? It's a few of you. You know, that's where the, the, all the sewing stuff is, the yarn and all this other. Most men really don't care for that, right? You can't fish with it. You, you can't hunt with it. There ain't a whole lot you can. So you get me. He said, I dread going to buy the yard goods department. But I often have to go because my wife enjoys looking at the fabrics. If on the way to the yard goods se section, however, I spot the book department, I suddenly come alive, he said. The things that excite us turn us on. And turn us on is the things that life is, is really life to us. He said the thing that excites us and turns us on is the thing that really is life to us. In Paul's case, Christ was his life. Christ excited him and made his life worth living. For some of us, it's our grandkids. Guys, get your grandkids off that pedestal. For some of us, it's our husband or wife. Get your husband and wife off that pedestal. For some of us, it's fishing, it's hunting, it's, it's recreating. Get all that stuff off the pedestal. Get it off. I'm not saying, guys, and I want to clarify this before I be quiet. I'm not saying to you today that a love for family and a desire for recreation and the pursuit of uh, a reputation and wealth aren't important. But instead of them being the main thing and Jesus being on the periphery of your life, let Jesus be the center part of your life and all that other stuff be the periphery. You can have Jesus at the center of your life and still be a fisherman like Peter. But it's always Jesus first. It's not either or. It can be both in the right order. My hope for you today, as you've listened to me struggle through this message with my voice, is that you can truly say Christ is your life. Can you say that? Can you say that Christ is my life? Yes, Pastor, I can say it. Christ is my life. That's not what I mean. Is he? Is he? Stand with me. Father in heaven, as we stand before you in humility, hear our prayer.
cast out the pridefulness within us that rejects the message like this. Help us, Father, to get off our high horse. Help us to take an honest look at ourselves. To recognize, Lord God, that you love us. But part, part of that love is in all of creation and all of the universe. For whatever reason, you put us first. You didn't send Jesus for his own name's sake or even for yours. You sent him to save us. You put us first. And all you're looking for from people who received your grace is the same courtesy that we love you back in the same way. Move us today, Lord, to respond to you. If we don't really love you like that, will you help us admit it? Will you help us to align our lives around Jesus? Hear our prayer. Today we don't know you, Lord God, and we are, we are the center of our life. Help us to recognize it. That we might confess it. That we might repent of it. And we might receive of you the grace you promised when we turn in faith to Jesus. We don't have to beg you, Lord God, because you didn't put us in that place. Your gift isn't to be begged for. You, you willingly, happily offer it. Move those who've never taken it to receive it today. And lead us all to respond to you in a way, Father God, that takes us from where we are now to where you want us to be tomorrow. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you to respond to that message in the little bit of time that we have this morning. As the music plays, will you respond? Grace is faithfulness.